Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwig. I'm joined today by Professor James Allen, good old friend of mine from Australia, who's just written a report, a report of a professor, actually, it says on the cover, James Allen on Hepuapua, the radical prescription for undermining democracy and the rule of law. Hi, Jim. Nice to see you, Oliver. And it, it has been quite a while, but we we did know each other quite well in Australia, so it's nice to be back. Yes, we, we indeed uh, did know each other really well. And actually, we invited you, I don't know how long it is ago, um, to launch one of your books. That was eight years ago. Democracy in Decline. And yeah. we launched this in Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch. And you're back in the country. I'm back in the country for, for another speaking else. tour. Yes, this is different. Although I do have a new book out, so that's exciting too. You've got a new book out. We yeah. can talk about the book yeah. later, but actually I want to talk about the report. And actually you have a speaking tour also, Auckland, Wellington and Christchurch, but this time on a completely different subject. Well, not a completely different subject. Last time you talked about democracy, but more in general terms. Now you're talking about something very specific, a specific threat to democracy, and that's Hepuapua. And for those of our listeners basically the ones who have probably lived under a rock for the last few <laughs> years, um, who haven't heard about Hepuapua, if you could characterize it in just one sentence, what is Hepuapua? So I don't speak Maori, but according to the authors of the report, it means a break or a break in the waves. And they use that as a metaphor because what they want in the report is to point a way to completely transmogrify or rewrite the New Zealand constitution. So People in New Zealand are living under one of the two most successful constitutional structures in the modern world. It's the Madisonian checks and balances American model and the British Dicean parliamentary sovereignty model. So you have to remember when people advocate change that this is the constitutional model that made us New Zealand be the first country in the world to give women the vote, that set aside four seats for Maori men in 1867, way before anyone else that brought in social democratic work reforms in the early 20th century. There are unbelievable, that completely redid the economy in the 1980s. And this is the model that they want to get rid of based on a vague sort of genuflecting in the direction of a UN declaration, which has zero democratic credentials and the Treaty of Waitangi. And it will be put into a written constitution. We don't know how. And unelected judges will oversee everything. It's it's a, just a nightmare scenario. Okay, so let's take a couple of steps steps back. A poor poor is the government's response to New Zealand joining an international declaration. Yes. When was that put in place, and uh, how did this become part of? Well, not probably not part of New Zealand law, but when did the New Zealand government sign up to it? So. Surprisingly, it was the John Key government that signed up to the declaration. And I think what listeners need to know... How old is the declaration, by the way? I don't know. Right. I don't know when but, it was... But the Key government signed up to it around 2015 or so? I think so. And so what listeners need to know is that in the Westminster world, so Britain, Australia, Canada, everywhere that was pink on the atlas when in the 1960s, you enter into treaties under the prerogative power, which means it doesn't go through the legislature... In the U.S., the Senate, you need a two-thirds vote. So they take treaties seriously. We don't take treaties seriously. I say this as a Canadian. So if the prime minister feels like signing up to a convention or a treaty, and provided he can get cabinet to go along with him or her, then it's done. And a declaration has a lower status even than a treaty. And so if the prime minister wakes up one day and feels like it might be a good idea to, to sign up to the U.N. declaration, it's done. Now, the trade-off for that in our part of the world is declarations, even treaties, they have no status in the domestic law. So you can enter into them because nobody takes them seriously. 
But if you want them to have any binding legal force, you have to incorporate them into a statute. What the authors of this... So can I just ask as a kind of part-time lawyer here, if New Zealand wanted to join, for example, NATO as a NATO treaty, could the Prime Minister sign up New Zealand for NATO? Well, NATO is not a multilateral treaty. NATO, you have to be effectively asked to join, and they won't ask New Zealand largely because even when I was here, you had that ridiculous anti-nuclear rule that stopped American naval ships. They will never ask Yeah, okay, but, but just in principle. Yeah, in principle. If, for a treaty, the prime minister can basically do whatever the prime minister likes. Provided you get cabinet to go along, then yes, it's an executive power. It's it's the leftover power that Henry VIII had in the 16th century that still exists that hasn't been taken by parliament. And it's so basically declaring war and entering into treaties are executive powers. Mm-hmm. We, we, we use the old language of a prerogative power. And that is exercised by the prime minister. But again, it's not in theory a big deal because the treaty has no status. Until you incorporate it into a statute, then it has real legal effect. So to give John Key some credit, he probably thought, eh, it's just a sort symbolic. of symbolic marketing thing. It'll keep the Maori members of my coalition happy. It was a terrible miscalculation, but you can half understand what the thinking was. So John Key probably didn't see it coming. Well, let's hope not. Okay. <laughs> um, but the next government then, Jacinda Ardern, in coalition actually with New Zealand First, tried to respond. And actually, from what I hear from New Zealand First circles, they didn't even know the response was being prepared. So I talked to someone quite high up in the New Zealand First Administration after the 2020 election, and that was when this Hepua Pua report got released. And um, I asked, so did you guys know about this? And they said, no. So this was something that the Labour cabinet minister actually prepared in the previous Labour New Zealand First coalition, but nobody even knew. Well, it's dated 2019, so that's when they wrote it, but I, I agree it wasn't released till uh, you know after the, the I can tell you, yeah. guaranteed, New Zealand First didn't know about didn't it. Didn't know, yeah. No. So this was prepared in private, in secret, even in secret from their coalition partner. What does it actually say? It's a document that deals in group rights, in identity politics. It offers uh, a model where... They, what they effectively want is big constitutional change. And I guess in a, in a brief way to describe it, the goal for them is this sort of co-governance model. So when you hear co-governance, it, it sounds moderately harmless, especially if somebody's playing a guitar in the background, kumbaya. <laughs> so it's basically the partnership model. Now, I don't like that to begin with because you're basically going down the ethnic race-based thinking in terms of groups instead of, you know, liberalism is premised on the focus on the individual and you assume that just because people share reproductive organs or skin pigmentation, they don't think exactly the same. Group rights thinking, they they throw those qualifications out the window. So that's bad to begin with. The other problem here is the two groups, one represents, I don't know, 15, 17% of the population and the other group is everyone else. They're imagining this world where this group of 17% is going to have an equal say and in some ways a veto on everything. And and that is not sustainable. It's not attractive. But all of this comes back to a ruling from the 1980s about the interpretation of the treaty, right? Well, it comes back to it in the sense that they're building on that, but there was no obligation on anyone to commission this report and there's no obligation on anyone to pay any attention to it. Okay, but the um, interpretation that the Treaty of Waitangi would even incorporate something like core governance would have been alien to generations of lawyers, basically since 1840. Correct. So the idea was actually that this treaty 
started something new with one people, with no divisions, actually trying to bring together. I, I never liked people. it. I worked here from 93 to 2004 in what was then a wonderful law school at Otago. And again, though, even the Treaty of Waitangi has no status in the domestic law. The judges are chipping away at that. The problem was that I think it goes back to the Douglas government or sorry, the Longy government. They made a what they thought was a harmless, they incorporated it into a statute. Maybe it was the SOE Act or something. And they talked about the principles of the treaty. Nobody knows what the principles are. You can read the treaty. Basically, that is a empty vessel. It's a blank check to the judiciary. And one of the things I've been pointing out on, on my talking tour is, you know, if you go back 60 years in the Anglosphere and you pick the median lawyer, his or her views would be to the right of the median voter. We know this. There's lots of data in the U.S. because uh, who you donate to is public information in the U.S. Today, the median lawyer's view is considerably to the left of the median voter. If you want some of the wokest workplaces in the country, just go down to a big Auckland law firm and go in. To, you'll, they'll be asked for your pronoun. Now, the, the good news is that New Zealanders' education system is so bad they won't know what a pronoun is. But if they happen to know what it is, they'll give you their pronoun. I mean, I, I, I don't know why they don't do adjectives. I, I identify as a witty, urbane person. So I'm insisting on people. You know, this kind of thinking is ridiculous. So when you hand over decisions to the judiciary, you are handing over decisions to the lawyerly caste. And it is very difficult for even center-right political parties to find judges who are remotely center-right. That's a big problem. Okay, but no matter the standing of the treaty itself, yeah. the interpretation of the treaty from its signing in 1840 to about the 1980s, so basically for 140 yeah. years, would have been one that this treaty establishes a new country with one people, And it was only in the 1980s that the idea of partnership and co-governance actually started to emerge as an interpretation of that treaty, whether it had any standing, legally speaking, or not. Right, but to defend the judges, if if the politicians start incorporating into statutes provisions about, you know, you have to interpret this in, in line with the principles of the treaty, then the judges have to do something. And, and so it's really the politicians' fault for putting it into the treaties. Without incorporation in the treaty, or in the statute, the, the treaty would have no standing. Okay, so... How I understand it, the idea, whether it came from politicians or from lawyers, emerged in the 1980s yeah. that we are talking yeah. about something that established something like a partnership or a co-governance model. Yes. And then it takes another 30 years until, well, basically John Key signs up to a UN declaration. And then it takes another five years until the Jacinda Ardern government, in private, in secret, starts actually deliberating on the response to that signing of the treaty. Correct. But remember, I'll say this again. When you pass a statute, that has a lot of democratic credentials. You vote it for people, everyone's been counted the same, and the MPs you vote for pass a statute. The declaration has such attenuated democratic credentials because, yes, you've elected your prime minister, but the prime minister just does it. There's no referendum, there's no passing it through the legislature. And so the authors of this report implicitly want to elevate this UN declaration as though it has some tremendous standing, and it doesn't really. It has the most emasculated standing. I mean, really, why do we care what the UN declaration says? I mean, to be fair to the authors of Epuapua and the government, they probably realize that just signing up to the treaty or to, to the declaration is not enough, so they're now trying to make this more concrete. Sure, and that's right. We, and we can see this perhaps in education policy, With um, the changes to the curriculum, we could see it in three waters. Yes. Um, so from Hepua Pua, 
what is the pathway, what is the roadmap now that you see from analyzing this government document? Well, if you're asking about what are the remedy to this sort of radical document, the remedy in the Westminster world is always political. That's what parliamentary sovereignty it is. It leaves your elected legislature as legally uh, unlimited, legally sovereign. Lawmaking, basically. Lawmaking. So you vote for a party that says we will remove whatever the Ardern government does. And personally, uh, I would have thought that's a moderately attractive position. I, I have been giving talks and people are outraged when they realize what's happening. So mm. if the politicians say, when we are elected, we will repeal this, that would be a very effective response. Now, I admit totally that I'm a moderately right of center uh, constitutional law prof. There's only three of us in Australia. There's no diversity of view in the universities. And so I'm a bit disappointed in Anglosphere conservative parties. They, they don't have any backbone as a general rule. Ron DeSantis is, a, is an exception, and there are a few others. But by and large, they don't have any backbone. So the temptation for right-of-center parties when they finally get elected is not to do anything to unwind the stuff that's been done by the left. And the left doesn't seem to have that problem. They get elected and they do stuff. And you know, from their point of view, that's, that's what you're elected to do. But the remedy here is wholly and completely political. You have to unwind the legislation or pass new legislation to countermand it. So would it be fair to say what we're discussing today is not so much a legal document, it is basically a political program, a manifesto? That's exactly what it is. It's not a legal document at all. It, it's advocating legal changes through changes in statutes that have yet, to, well, some of them, as you mentioned, have started to come in. And I know the Ardern government pretends that this Hey Pua Pua report isn't driving policy, but it sure looks like it to me. Okay, so the real question that we should be debating today is then, are we dealing with a legal document and the legal prescription which necessitates us to make some changes, or are we really discussing the manifesto of one government? There are no legal materials that necessitate anything. There is a political document that purports to give a very high status to a UN declaration. In fact, it has a very low status. And they are advocating a complete change to the existing constitutional structure, which is one of the world's most successful. Let me say that again. And, you know, it's the mark of a normally sane person when you have one of the most successful constitutional structures, not to jump into a boat that no one can even describe in advance. So, And, I, and if you look around the world at countries that go down the sort of ethnic, uh, race-based sort of group identity politics road, you're looking at Fiji, you're looking at Malaysia, India after independence, it's not good. Mm -hmm. And it, India has backtracked from it, but I don't know. It's not an appealing sort of model to me. It's not sustainable, I don't think, when it's a 15% versus 85% co-governance partnership. But you're not playing kumbaya, Oliver, while I'm saying this, but think it. Um, so it's a disaster, I think. So just a question, um, because I suspect that most of our listeners wouldn't be constitutional lawyers. What you're explaining, the status of international declarations and treaties in the Westminster system, in the New Zealand system, is that a common position within the law, or are you taking a... No, this, is, an ortho this, is, the this is the orthodox This is the orthodox status. Now, it is true that the sort of judicial class is taking these sort of international law documents and they start in administrative law. So they're not dealing with statutes, they're dealing with secondary legislation. And they will say things like, and I'm sort of, this is a massive general, they will say, well, this this secondary piece of law is unclear. And so we will interpret it through the lens of this international law. Now, of course, if the legislature wishes to be clear, they can. 
But since they're not clear, and again, I wouldn't be handing these decisions over to the judiciary because I can tell you, as an empirical generalization, it's not judges will be much more sympathetic to this sort of program than your median voter. Now, they don't have very many tools to work with with orthodoxy, but they're building them up slowly. It's a sort of a, you know, it's a default secondary legislation sort of thing. But now, now again, there's no claim anywhere that the judges can override a statute. So the legal position in this case is as clear as any kind of first-year law student would recognize. Uh, the In order to implement what they want, the Ardern government is going to have to pass statutes, and they have been doing that. So mm. Three Waters didn't come about other than through a statute. Okay, well then let's take Heipuapua as a political statement, as a manifesto, and go through that. What's your take on it as a manifesto? Unbelievably unappealing. I don't think there's anything very much attractive about living in a in a world in which you are seen as a cog in a larger group. The report never even tells us how you're going to put people into the Maori group. So if your model of the world is one where you have two groups, it's pretty important to tell us, how are we going to decide who's a Maori? Is it going to be a blood test? Are we going to draw the line at, you know, 130 seconds, so you can say seven of my great-grandparents oppressed my eighth great-grandparent. Is it going to be a, a, a test that's driven by a tribal elite? Is it going to be a self-identifying test that just collapses into absurdity? We don't know. And we, we're not also told in the report the second order. So the first order issue is, who's going to be a Maori? We need a rule. And the second order issue is, who's going to oversee the application of the rule once you've got a rule? And you're going to need to know this because... There's going to be considerable benefits to being in the in the smaller of the two co-governance groups. Actually, another legal question. How would any of this be compatible with other sources of law? I mean, we've got the Human Rights Act. We have the General Declaration of Human Rights uh, from the UN as well. Wouldn't there be an automatic contradiction between Hepuapua and these other documents? I mean, I'm 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 not a I'm not someone who thinks that these UN declarations are conventions or they're not something to pay too much attention to you have to be a bit cynical listeners might like to know that the the united nations human rights council is issuing resolutions all the time they have issued more resolutions against israel for being the you know the most rights infringing country on earth than every other country on earth put together apparently the worst place to be a woman on earth according to these morons is israel now Nobody actually believes that. Nobody believes that the the most rights-infringing place to be a woman is Israel. I visited there to visit Jerusalem. It was magnificent. And it was like being in a James Bond movie. All these all these young, attractive uh, Israeli women with machine guns. You're going, oh, my God. this is. So you have to take these UN. The UN is a political body. You vote for countries to be on these bodies like the UN Human Rights Council, and you end up with countries like Libya, China, Saudi Arabia telling us telling us what our rights are. These are the countries you wouldn't take moral advice from if your life depended on it. Okay, but take it back one step from the UN as it is today. There is a General Declaration of Human yes. Rights, and the General Declaration basically starts off saying that people are created equal. Sure. And, and now you have a declaration yeah. on the rights of indigenous people, and and suddenly they are not so equal after all. So isn't there a legal contradiction between the two declarations? Well, it, it, again, these are these are documents that have no legal standing in the domestic law. So they're aspirational documents, and so you can point to anything you want if you're a political actor. 
So yes, it's true that the authors of Hey Pua Pua, they genuflect ever so briefly in the direction of individual equality, but they say you have to be careful that that doesn't override or limit, and the, and the jargon word here is equity. So equity just signals that you're going to think in statistical terms and you're going to think about groups. So once you've somehow defined a group, if we leave Maori aside, say women, what you do then is you look at their percentage of the population and then you look at some desirable position or job. So maybe boards on a big company. They never pick undesirable jobs. Mm-hmm. They, they, no one ever says, no, 95% of all deaths at work are jobs held by men. So we need to really up the number of women who are die on job. It's, so it's always desirable jobs. And then they go, look, there's a statistical mismatch. Okay, That's pathetic sort of argument, by the way. I mean, if we take it back from the UN level and into the New Zealand domestic law level, we have human rights as well yeah. in New Zealand. Yeah. We have a Human Rights Act. How compatible would something like Hepua Pua and all the documents that flow from it be with the domestic human rights legislation? Well, I've never been a fan of statutory bills of rights or real bills of rights because I think... Uh, they just are a vehicle for handing social policy making over to the judges. And we see that in the U S all the time. We're seeing it with the Roe v. Wade, but uh, the statutory bill of rights in New Zealand does not allow judges to invalidate statutes. They could issue a declaration, but my bet is they won't again, because they bring a certain set of assumptions and views to the table. But even if they did issue a, a declaration saying, we don't think this, you know, Three Waters legislation is compatible with human rights or something like that. It's not binding. It's it's just a declaration. So uh, if a government were committed, and this is the strengths of a parliamentary sovereignty as well as the weaknesses, if a government's committed to doing something through legislation, they can do it. And the only remedy New Zealanders have is to vote for a political party that undoes it. And I would have thought, just looking around the world, that this would be a very attractive political position because I don't think very many people are going to like this co-governance model. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Okay, so basically what you're telling us is that this document, a poor poor, has no legal standing. The UN declaration has no legal standing. You're skeptical on the domestic human rights legislation anyway. So basically what you are telling us as a law professor is that we should actually think of all of this, not so much as a legal problem, but a political one. Well, in this case, that that is what you have. Now, again, UN instruments are used by the judiciary when it comes to looking, uh, let's say, ambiguous secondary legislation, that sort of thing. So with that caveat in mind, in a parliamentary sovereignty system like Britain's and New Zealand's, at the end of the day, if the legislature that is elected wishes to do something through legislation, they can do it. And your remedy is to vote for a party that undoes it. And that is the system that has worked so well. So I'm not criticizing that system. I am saying that the parties that find this distasteful ought to have a bit of a backbone and indicate that this is just not going to be tolerable. You're an experienced constitutional public lawyer. Have you ever in your career encountered a document just like this? Well, I've never encountered one that has the implicit imprimatur of a government. I'm sure you get lots of radical documents. I'm sure. sure this, this read to me like a document that would come out of a Maori studies department in a university. I'm sure they're everywhere. It looks as though the Ardern government is making noises as though this isn't driving policy, but it looks like it is to me. So there's, you know, there's the signaling the government's given, but they could just be protecting their backside. I don't know enough about the inside political workings, but, you know, you would think that this is the sort of program they ought to have taken Hmm. to the election. They didn't do that, or they could put it to a referendum. They won't do either of those because they'd be slaughtered. So the background to my question is just how alien is 
such an approach to our conventional approach to policy making and to constitutional affairs? Traditionally, we just did not deal in group rights thinking. That has changed everywhere in the democratic world a little. You have to admit that uh, seeing the world through this so-called equity lens where you, you, you look at everything through particular groups, that has increased. But the idea that it would drive explicit government policy so that one particular, it would be as though the Americans were passing legislation so that uh, black Americans, who are about 13, 14% of the population, effectively had a veto on all laws. Mm. And it's, and it, you know, that, that would never, that would never get through the American Congress. So your recommendation to the New Zealand Parliament and to the New Zealand public would be if you want to have something like this, whether it's compatible or not, with the existing constitutional setup, what it needs at least is a debate and ideally a sanctioning at the next election. That would be the honest and upright thing to do. If you were a Machiavellian, you might think we can't win that, so we're not going to do that. And I, you know, I, I don't know what, what the thinking is behind the scenes. But uh, for those people who, those political actors who find this distasteful, you're elected to do things and you're elected to have a bit of a backbone. And so voters need to look at the parties and the politicians who are standing up on core issues. I, I mean, I sort of agree with Mark Stein that everything is downstream of culture. Mm -hmm. And if you're just a party that worries about reducing the tax rate by two points, you end up having no legacy. And actually, there is a bit of a precedent for seeking public approval for relatively radical changes. And actually, that takes us back to John Key, as much as you might criticize him for everything else. But when John Key wanted to change the flag of the country, which is, in the grand scheme of things, a minor thing, he took it to a referendum. He did. He could have lost. That's right. He could have just had legislation rammed through. That's what happened in Canada with Pierre yeah. Trudeau back yeah. in the 1960s. Exactly. Yeah. So I, I'm... I Frank, wish, frankly, I I'm puzzled. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm puzzled. puzzled. We had a referendum on a flag change, which in the grand scheme of things is minor. And now we have a document like a poor poor and all the co-governance changes that rest on this document. And there is no referendum. Correct. But if someone said to you, uh, I'm hiring you to be Machiavellian, how can we get this through? You might adopt the approach they're adopting. Hmm. Maybe that's a lesson we take off yeah, of this whole maybe. exercise. <laughs> Well, thank you very much for this report. I hope that the speaking tour goes well, and I hope that New Zealand gets the debate it deserves. I hope so too. These are important questions, and it was great to have you with us. Yep, I, yeah. I loved my family, and I loved our eleven years here. And it, it would be sad to see the, the country go down this road for me. Speaking personally, great. And on that note, thank you very much, yeah. Jim Allen. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>